0: Welcome to episode six of the VMA's podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. And today we are going to talk about the first eight chapters of Mark and what we learn about Jesus in these chapters. Let's jump right in. Mark 1, 7 through 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of those sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and unite. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What did John the Baptist, who was speaking here, what did John mean when he said that he baptizes with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, would baptize with the Holy Spirit?
1: Yeah, so I think there are kind of two questions in your one question, right? What is John the Baptist doing? Right. right? So his role is to prepare the way mm-hmm. for the Lord to come, right? So he identifies himself, really two main passages, one from the Old Testament in Isaiah 40, right? He's preparing the way for the Lord to come. Um, and then two from Malachi chapter 3, uh, that he is the messenger who's preparing the way for the The messenger of the covenant is what it says in Malachi 3, Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to come into his temple and purify the priests and the Levites there. So that's what he's doing. And it seems as though that John the Baptist is preparing a people for the Messiah, right? When we get to John 1, we'll see this a little bit more carefully, uh, where John's followers, he points them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, yep. Right? But God is using John the Baptist to prepare these people. And they're having a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, right? And so they're coming, confessing their sins. What I find striking is the location of where he is baptizing, right? Mm -hmm. He's not just baptizing in a lake, he's not just baptizing in a pool or in a building like the way that we do. Uh, He's in the Jordan River, right? And the Jordan River is the place where the people of Israel came into the land. Mm-hmm. Right? So the people left Egypt by going out of the Red Sea, going through the Red Sea. That was right. Moses leading the people. And then when Moses went off the scene and Joshua came on the scene, Joshua leads the people through the flood stages of the waters there at the Jordan to bring them into the land. And now John the Baptist is at these same waters. And he is having them go under the waters and come back out of the waters. Right. It's almost as if uh, he is preparing them to be this remnant, this new Israel that is there. Right? Certainly in Mark's Gospel, there's a big theme of Exodus there. Jesus is coming to bring this exodus and it seems like John is setting up the people for that so that even when Jesus comes, often yes, okay, why does Jesus have to be baptized? Right? If, if, if John is making baptism for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus is not a sinner, right? he's sinless, right. why does he have to be baptized? Mm. Some, I think, falsely, will want to say, well, his baptism is a vicarious repentance. He's repenting for us. Okay. No, I don't <laughs> think that's it. Um, I think what it is, he's identifying with the sinners, Mm -hmm. right? He's identifying with his people. He's going outside of the land by going across the Jordan River and he's coming back through very symbolically, he's leading his people in this way. Mm. John's preparing the way for him and now these followers are going to come with him. And maybe to just add a little bit more to this, what's the symbolism involved in baptism? One of the things is that in the Old Testament, the only time that you have a person putting water on another person, or putting them under the water, is when somebody is being ordained as a priest.
0: Mm.
1: So Jesus comes, and now he's going to be baptized by Jesus, uh, by John, and it's identifying him as this new priest that's coming into the land to be leading a kingdom of priests that John has just baptized here. Right. Right. So I think those are things going on with his water baptism. But the second part of the question has to do with this baptism of the Spirit. Now, a lot of times you will hear um, Jesus, actually you'll hear Christians speak of the Spirit baptizing someone. Mm-hmm. But the Spirit doesn't baptize. The Spirit is the one in whom people are baptized. Jesus is the one who baptizes mm-hmm. with or in the Spirit. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, in this way, we see uh, that Jesus is going to have a greater baptism because it's not going to be in water just purifying the flesh. It's mm-hmm. going to actually cleanse the, the soul. Right, yeah. Right. And so, when does this take place? Well, this language again of the baptism of the Spirit, Jesus picks up in Acts 1, it's going to take place on the day of Pentecost. That mm-hmm. right? The Spirit is going to be poured out, and that Spirit is still being poured out to the ends of the earth, so that when the Gospel goes forward, Jesus is baptizing people into the Spirit, um, bringing them into communion and covenant with the Father. Right. So maybe to put it all together, um, the Father, calls His people through the means of the Son and the preached gospel. The Son is at work sending the Spirit from the Father to give this life in this baptism. Right, That baptism then gives new life to the people. They have died with Christ. They have been raised with Christ. They come to Christ and by coming to Christ they are brought to the Father. Mm. So beautifully we see how the Trinity working together is there in baptism, but not just here at the water baptism but in the baptism of any believer that comes through the Spirit sent by the Son from the Father.
0: <laughs> That's good. I wish you guys could see David's hands moving as he talks.
1: <laughs> if I were to sit on my hands, I would stop talking.
0: <laughs> Let's go ahead and look at Mark 1, 16-17. Um, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So I believe we talked about this phrase, fishers and men, in our Tuesday night Bible study. Does this relate back to Jeremiah 16:15 and 17, which reads, But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I give to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them for every mountain and every hill. And out of the clefts of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes.
1: Yeah, so basically, any time that we read the New Testament, Mm -hmm. it's likely that somewhere in the paragraph on the page Mm -hmm. is something from the Old Testament. Right. Right. Sometimes we find direct quotations, sometimes we find allusions, and I certainly think that what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is referring back to Jeremiah 16. Right? So, just the context that you read, if we just go back a little bit further, um, back in verse 14. right, It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought the people out of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Right. So. He's making a contrast in Jeremiah between the first Exodus and the second Exodus. Mm -hmm. And the second Exodus began when the people of Israel came out of the north country. They came out of Babylon back into the land. But in so many ways, the Exodus is still continuing in the days of Jesus. So Jesus comes and he says, uh, the days of restoration are here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God has come. And so he uses this language then of you will be fishers of men. Like these days of restoration are here. Right. Right? And so, He is telling them, as these disciples follow like, this is what you're coming to do, right? It's not just a a turn, um, just a clever turn of phrase, right? You who used to be fishers of fish are now going to fish for men. Mm -hmm. Like, it's actually fulfilling a promise in the Old Testament. And if these disciples had grown up in the synagogue, hearing the words of God, Jeremiah being read, they would have heard that, they would have seen that, which explains why They follow Jesus. Why they drop their nets Mm -hmm. and follow Him? Because sometimes, like, man, they've had incredible faith. Yeah, right. Right. Like they just they just go. They leave their father behind. Like I'm not sure I have that kind of faith. But part of it is like we may not understand what Jesus is saying to them. Right? He's saying the kingdom is here, the restoration is here, they're thinking glory has come, therefore it doesn't matter if they're fishing any longer. Right, They're going to go and they're going to see the kingdom come. Right. And there's reality to that, what they don't understand yet at the beginning of Mark is that that glory is going to come through suffering, right? Right. The means of fishing for men will mean sacrificing themselves in order to bring the gospel to them. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I definitely think we should read Mark 1 um, with the light that Jeremiah 16 gives to it. Hmm.
0: Mark 3, 28 and 29, I'm going to go ahead and read those verses. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So long before I came to Christ, I've always heard people say that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that you can't be saved or you Mm -hmm. can't go to heaven. So what what does it actually mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit?
1: Yeah, that's an important question. And, you know, because certainly the text says that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness right Yeah, right? so there's something to that and it should have some teeth in it yes right? at the same time we should just read the context mm-hmm. right um, and to see you know what has just been said in verses 23 through 27 is to basically assign the good works that Jesus is doing or is doing as the works of Satan mm. right it is to be so uh, opposed to Jesus that that person would be confused between good and evil Right? Or even more than that, they would confuse who Jesus is and the identification of his Satanic origins, which of mm. course is blasphemous. Right, yeah. right. And so I think in this case, it's, it's not even because there were certainly those who are opposed to Jesus, Paul was opposed to Jesus, right yeah right. Uh, but in this case, uh, there's a way in which um, somebody can be so misunderstanding, led by Satan, to, to not know uh, who Jesus is, that they would blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, mm. somebody will say, have I committed that sin? Like, if there's a care and a concern that you've committed that sin, you haven't committed that sin. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, the person who's burdened by that is not the person that this is speaking of. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the person that has so much hatred towards Jesus that they would see him as nothing but pure evil, that mm. they are at that point giving themselves over to that kind of wickedness.
0: Wow. In Mark 5, 1-13, Jesus cast out 2,000 demons out of one man who called himself Legion. After this, the people saw that that wild man who had once been possessed and crazy now was in his right mind. When the people saw this, they were afraid and begged Jesus to depart. Why would the people who just witnessed a miracle um, want Jesus to go away?
1: Well, obviously, I mean... What happens with these demons is to send them into the pigs, right? Yes. And then to be brought down into the lake. I mean, somebody's losing some serious cash. Yeah, yeah I uh, thought about that as yeah, I read this. Yeah. Right. I mean, so he is he is completely upsetting everything that mm-hmm. is going on around there. At the same time, he's bringing healing, relief, and and uh, the kingdom uh, to the people who are there, right? I can't help but wonder, like, okay what's somebody shepherding, or what's somebody doing with 2,000 pigs? Right, yeah. Right? I mean, those are the unclean animals, right? So he yeah. takes these unclean spirits and puts them in the unclean... It's like, are those Gentiles? Are those Jews? Like, who, who is that mm. that is doing that? I'm not sure if we know. But what we do know is that when he brings grace to this person, there are others who are hateful towards Jesus about um, it. Maybe this, this teaches us something about human nature again. Right, That to see the grace and the power of God at work in someone else's life doesn't always result in celebration mm. right um, I can think of somebody you know who maybe uh, the person has done something terrible and Jesus forgives them and the people around him is like, no I want that person to die I want that mm-hmm. person to be come under judgment I don't I can't, there's so much hatred towards that person that they can't even celebrate the grace of God that would give to them, right? Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it's like, no, Like what Jesus does is always right, mm. and what he does here to, to bring grace and relief to this man should be celebrated, and yet human hearts
0: don't always do that. Yeah, we see that a lot. Even um, when Paul was changed, mm-hmm. the other disciples were like, wait a minute. It what is time. he doing
1: here? Yeah, it took time. Yeah, it took time. Right? And and so, you know, this is why it is so good to have Barnabases in the church. Yeah. Right? Those who can bear witness to the change in the life of somebody in the church. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, because there's a sense in which, okay, we don't want to be quickly duped. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also uh, want to believe... Um, And to give that grace, but it just takes that time to be able to do it. And sometimes it takes an individual to come and to be an advocate for that other person in the church. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy role to have, yeah, uh, because really you're you're kind of pressed in on both sides. Right. Uh, And yet, it's an important role in the church.
0: Because even Barnabas was like, "You want me to go where?"
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was more Ananias, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Ananias who was going to go and and talk to to Paul. But you can understand the fear that Ananias had. And why when Barnabas, Barnabas is walking through uh, to the church with Paul, it's like, wait, wait, that, that's the guy. Right, yeah. right? And even more strange, of course, they didn't have a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we think of people like, okay, when we talk about the president, we know exactly what he looks like. right? Yeah. But 200 years ago... They might not have known what the president looked like. Right. Yeah. It was a kind of strange thing to think right, about. Yeah, true. Right. So it is in the scriptures. Like the people heard about Jesus, but they wouldn't have known what he looked like. Right. Yeah. Right. He certainly doesn't look like the pictures that we see in our day today. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so again, uh, it's just putting ourselves in the position there, seeing how it's at work, how it's to be, to, to be instructing us. It's just a, is an ongoing challenge uh, yeah. that we find.
0: So this might be an extension of what we just talked about, but in Mark six we read that when Jesus went home to his uh, when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, the people rejected him. Why is that?
1: Well, he says a prophet is not uh, without honor in his own hometown yeah, right so he recognizes that it seems as though uh, the ones who knew him the most in his human life had the hardest time to receive him as the Messiah. Right. Certainly his brothers were in this case, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they knew him as a brother, and then when he begins to go out, like they thought he was crazy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, is uh, it Mark 2 where they're wanting to bring him back, or Mark 3, they're wanting yeah. to bring him back, you know, because he's saying these crazy things. Um, so, I think that's partly, uh, partly it, but then in the resurrection, uh, we see that his brothers come to faith, so that of James course. and Jude um, do place their faith in him. So there's always that challenge. Like Again, why does anybody believe? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not because of familiarity, and it's not because of novelty. Right. Right? It's not because of the attraction that we can make Jesus look attractive. It's just, it's God right? Mm-hmm. And His Spirit that illumines and gives light to eyes to see who Jesus truly is. And when He opens our eyes to see who He truly is, then He compels us to come and to trust in Him.
0: Right. In Mark 7, the Pharisees and the scribes are taken aback because the disciples did not follow tradition by washing their hands before eating. In our churches, we also have traditions, which are necessarily bad unless their traditions um, are out of line with the Word, Right, which sometimes they are. Yeah. They're, and this is. There was a. I heard a story, and this was secondhand, but I heard a story of there was a a, a guy wanted to preach, a pastor wanted to uh, preach in, in somebody else's church. He mm-hmm. was a visiting pastor, yeah. and he wanted to move a table hmm. um, that was up front, yeah. and they stopped him, and said, No, 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 that table is holy. You know, and he was like, you know, mm-hmm. it, but basically those people were adhering to the tradition. I, and I have one more. This was even even worse. This was when I first got saved. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to church and I was standing in the lobby and I heard a man um, tell somebody else that he would never allow his children to come to church mm-hmm. if they weren't dressed up. Mm-hmm. Now, and because he was worried about what other people right. were going to think. Sure. Um, so. I thought that was strange because I was thinking, well, what if somebody doesn't have a suit? Sure, you know, sure. what, what is yeah. he going to think about yeah. that person who yeah. walks in and they don't have a suit, That's right. you know, or how is he going to treat them? Yeah. And I always thought that that was not good.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you have traditionalists who have their tradition and you have anti-traditionalists who are making their own tradition. Yeah. Right. I mean, so part of being human is to make traditions, right, yeah. right? to make patterns, right? We did that last year, we liked it, so we're going to do it this year, we're going to do it next year, mm-hmm. and by however it goes, we just keep doing it, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, actually, traditions can be a really helpful way of reinforcing what is true, Right. so long as what is true continues to be what is prized and, and, and put at the center. Right. right. What we find here in Mark 7 is that there are certain traditions that are being added to the law. So, the law is important, and the law ultimately is supposed to be leading us to see our need for the gospel. Like this uh, last week in First Timothy 1, we're going to see how the law leads us to the gospel, right? So, that's the purpose of the law to expose our sin, to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, for Jesus to come and to fulfill all the things that are there, but it seems as though they were so bent out of shape on keeping the law as the end in itself, Mm -hmm. they're adding traditions to it. right? So now these traditions are in service to that, and because Jesus doesn't abide by their traditions, well then he's out of step with the law. Mm. But of course he's not out of step with the law, because he is the law incarnate. (laughs) right? Right? He's the word incarnate. So I think it just teaches us to say the most important thing is, um, is the gospel, However, it is good and right for us to have traditions that are going to be in support of that. In fact, Paul will speak later in the scriptures of the traditions that they have, and he's referring to the gospel right, right? in the way that it's being spoken of there. So, we can so easily be anti-tradition, and yet, in that anti-traditionalism, We're just making new traditions that are different from those who went before it. So one of the things that came out of the Reformation, which was dealing with all kinds of Roman Catholic, Catholic traditions, was a theme of saying reformed and always reforming. right? That the scripture always has a way of reforming those who are being transformed by it. Right, so just in our own church right now, we're giving some thought and attention to some structures of leadership with respect to deacons, especially, mm-hmm. right? And we've had some ways of doing that in the past, and those have been good. But there's been some ways we recognize, yeah, those things are maybe not so good. Uh, so we want to go back to the Bible, say, what does the Bible say? Right. And at the end of the day, we want to do what the Bible tells us to do. That's right. And to apply it with as much wisdom as possible, and to recognize that there may be in different contexts, um, different traditions that are actually. Not out of step with the Bible, but just different ways that people do certain things, right? Yeah, yeah. right. That are neither right nor wrong, uh, and so we just need to hold fast to the Word of God to judge those traditions based upon the Word of God, and then give grace, right? Where there are different um, opinions mm-hmm. on on third level issues uh, with respect to those traditions. Uh, and so I think we can see in Mark seven where the ultimate uh, focus is, mm-hmm. right? These people, he talks about this this passage. He's quoting from Isaiah twenty nine. These people who speak of me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Right? Yeah. And what is Jesus doing? He's ultimately coming to bring the law and to write it on the hearts of his people, right? So that from the overflow of their hearts they would begin to live new lives, mm. and that ultimately is where it's leading us in Mark seven.
0: Yeah, and also I think that you know just culturally not even necessarily um you know just culturally that we're going to have differences and mm-hmm. the way that we yeah. worship may be different i'm not even talking about just in the united states or, yep. or black and white i'm talking sure. about internationally absolutely um so and those things aren't necessarily uh, wrong it's just yep. it's just different because the cultures are different yep. and even in the bible they had different cultures and different languages and yep. different ways of doing things that that aren't necessarily wrong it's because it's i think that as long as we're as our as our intent is to uh, to follow the word of God and to you know worship you know worship our Lord and not the tradition, I think we're okay.
1: Well I'm glad you mentioned just the the cultural piece that because all of our worship is going to be expressed through some sort of culture. Right, yeah. Right. And so if you only have one culture, Mm -hmm. right? in an area and you have the gospel, necessarily the gospel is then going to be communicated through the different culture, whether it's dress or the language Mm. or the style of music or any of those other things. However, when you have multiple cultures being brought together, what does that do? It teaches the people what is central to the gospel And right. what is just an addition or an application in the culture. Right. So I think there's something beautiful and challenging when you have multiple gospel communities with different cultures coming together. Mm-hmm. What's beautiful about it, it teaches us this is the core of what the gospel is. That's right. And actually, we can appreciate the way that the gospel is informing multiple cultures in this way. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a different culture than my own or my preference. But can I see Christ in that? That's right. Can I learn from that, and can we together grow in an appreciation of who Jesus is? Like, I think that ultimately has to be our heart.
0: Yeah, because you know we're in a different culture than the authors of the Bible. That's exactly. You know, yeah. but we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's right. Yeah. Staying with the same situation in Mark seven, where the Pharisees and the scribes were upset that some of the disciples were eating with dirty or defiled hands. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What does Jesus mean by this? What do these verses mean?
1: Yeah, again, he's dealing with um, scribes and Pharisees who are, living under and teaching the old covenant. Hmm. And the old covenant was given for sacrifices and various washings and food laws and all the rest that could cleanse the that could cleanse the the flesh, mm-hmm. right? which is to say it couldn't clean the conscience, right? Right, It wasn't intended to be able to do the deep dive, to do the work in the heart. Jesus is coming for the new covenant and he's gonna deal with the heart, Mm. right? And so Jesus is getting at the fact that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm -hmm. Out of the desires of the heart, the body acts, Mm. right? And so, though our habits certainly have a way our traditions can inform things in our heart, ultimately the biggest issue is what is within, Mm. right? And so, these disciples are not washing their hands in the ceremonial way, but that lack of hand washing is not making their heart any more dirty than it already was. Right, right? Yeah. The issue is already there. Mm. Um, likewise, these scribes and Pharisees are doing all the, the ceremonial washings are not able to get to the biggest issue. Right? Mm. Even worse, they're making it worse because they think they're okay on the outside. They look like they've put it all together. And yet their heart, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, is filled with dead men's bones. Mm. Right? They're whitewashed tombs. Um, and so he's getting at that. And again, this is what Jesus Christ came to do, to cleanse the conscience. right? Not just to cleanse the flesh, but to cleanse our very hearts. To take out the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh that is good and right and loving and that needs to grow, needs to learn, needs to to obey, um, but he's giving that life to be able to do that.
0: All right. Our last question today has to do with the two miracles that Jesus performs in Mark 7 and in Mark 8. In Mark 7 31 through 38, Jesus heals a deaf man by spitting on the ground, making mud, and touching the man's ears. Then in Mark 8 22 through 26, Jesus heals a man of blindness, but not at first. It's strange if Jesus has the power to heal instantly. It seems odd that this miracle takes two phases. So what is going on in these miracles? What do they teach about Jesus?
1: Yeah, I mean, these miracles are just kind of strange. Um, You know, where he is spitting on the ground, he's making mud, he's touching the man's ears, and the result is healing. Right. Right. I think um, if we learn something from the story of the leper, where the leper who is unclean comes and touches Jesus, when Jesus touches him, the leper is made clean. Mm-hmm. There's almost this contagious holiness that Jesus has. So in the Old Testament, um, if you spit on someone, if somebody who is unclean spits on somebody else, it makes them unclean. Right. And yeah. right? it's an unclean thing to, to put saliva on mm-hmm. somebody else. And yet here, Jesus takes his saliva with dirt and he is bringing restoration and healing to this deaf man. It's like hmm. I think it's indicating it's that kind of power that Jesus has. Right. That even his uncleanness makes people clean. Right. Because he's not unclean. That's right. Right. Nothing I about mean, it's me. just an amazing thing to see. Or with the other one, you um, have to just read it in context again. Right. So again, uh, in Mark chapter eight, uh, when we see him. Uh, healing the man and his blindness and it's he kind of gets you know better vision but he's got to go back to the optometrist to be able to see better again mm-hmm. it's not because Jesus is lacking in power it's not Harry Potter right where he's given a, a, a magical spell and that one didn't work so he's got to go back and do another one it's not that at all it's teaching us something of what comes next right what comes next well mark 8 verse 27 says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter charged him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter sees, Mm -hmm. right? He had blindness before, but now he sees. Right. But what kind of eyesight does he have? Does he have crystal clear 2020 vision?
0: Not at first. No, because <laughs> yeah, look what while. comes next, yeah. right?
1: So Jesus goes on to teach uh, that he is going to suffer many things. And mm-hmm. Peter, then in verse 32, takes Jesus aside as if to kind of instruct Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. He rebukes him. Verse 33 says, Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in one moment, he's able to confess. Jesus as the Christ, right. and in the next he's tempting Jesus uh, to do something that would be the way of Satan. Right? He can see, but not completely. Right, yeah. right? And just in that, that miracle, the man can see, but it looks as though there are trees walking around, but then he heals him again, he's able to see more. Right. Um, maybe we could even say, I don't know if I want to say this, it's interesting he talks about trees, Peter, who is behind Mark's Gospel, mm-hmm. is the one who talks about Jesus being hung on a tree. Right, yeah. Right. It is true that at the cross is where we see most clearly who Jesus Christ is. Mm-hmm. Right. If we want to know who God is, it's in the cross and understanding it rightly that we are able to, to discern most clearly, to have our eyes most open to know who God is. Maybe there's something there.
0: Maybe. <laughs> This concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you do your daily readings, if you come up with any questions that you would like to ask David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode.
1: Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.